We're in the book of Colossians. Hear the word of God in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 we dealt with last week. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to respond to each person. The walk of wisdom is the result of the knowledge that ultimately you understand all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Last week in Colossians 2 verse 3 it says this, God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Therefore, we continually learn of Christ. We continually glory in the greatness of the cross. We continually run to the reality of Christ. And here's my thesis this morning. I want you to hear it. I'm going to hear it several times. Grace-saturated, cross-centered people speak graciously. Grace-saturated, cross-adoring people speak graciously. And so in the book of Colossians, Paul is hammering home the centrality and the glory and the wonder of Christ. Just a few verses. Listen to Colossians 1, verse 12. says, you should joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light, he has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Behold the glory of the cross. Chapter 1, verse 21. And you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in Christ. But behold the glory of the cross. Chapter 2, verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with Christ having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He said this aside, nailing it to the cross. Behold the glory of Christ. Behold the wonder of all that Christ is for us. As you glory in the cross and you walk in the presence of the living Christ. You are drawn into the profundity and the mystery and the glory and the wonder of all that he is for us. And, and he changes you. He changes us. And, and grace-filled people speak graciously. Glory in the cross. I was reading Mark 14 recently, and in Mark 14, Jesus is on trial right before his crucifixion, before the high priest. And the high priest says this, he says, Christ remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man, which is the term of the eternal nature of Christ out of Daniel 7. And you shall see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. Jesus claimed to be one with God. And I just thought, may I never get over the incredible glory of Christ and him crucified. And I, after reading this, I went, to, I went to a worship service at a conference, and they, they sang a hymn that I love, and you love this hymn, but I just want to tell you, I want you to think theologically, I want you to think well. Uh, the, the hymn, so I'm going to take issue with this hymn just a little bit. Don't, don't be upset with me too much. The hymn is, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. It's a, it's a wonderful hymn. The second stanza says this. This is my issue. For me, it was in the garden, garden of Gethsemane. He said, not my will, but thine. He had no grief for his own. He, he had no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Now, as you consider the glory of the cross, here's my problem. And I get this from a guy named Martin Luther, okay? He's a pretty good guy, okay? Martin Luther said this. He said, I have seen many men die. He says, but never has a man feared death like Jesus feared death. And he was a man of incredible bravery. And Luther says, why did he fear death? I think he's spot on. He says, because Jesus knew that on the cross, from the first time from all eternity, there would be an existential moment when he was separated from the bosom of his father because he would be a sin bearer for us. The Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And so he is pleading, Father, if possible, may this cup pass from me. And I, I, I say, he sweat drops of blood because he realized the agony of separation. It, it, not not the, the horrible nature of crucifixion, which was horrible, but being separated from the Father because he became a sin bearer. And I say, church, behold the glory of the cross. Because... That's what the Apostle Paul was writing the book of Galatians, and he's closing the book of Galatians. You know, the book of Galatians is written, and the message of Galatians was there was a group of people saying, it's fine to believe in Jesus, but you must be circumcised in your flesh to be part of the kingdom. And, and, and Paul, you know, the former Pharisee, who, who gloried in that at one time, said, if somebody preaches that gospel, may they be condemned to hell. Because that's not the gospel of grace. And so Paul closes his book, he says this, verse 13 of chapter 6. For, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. We're all sinners. 
but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They want you to be circumcised so they can say, we won the argument. You're in the club now. And then this beloved apostle says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but only the new creation in Christ. Behold the simple yet profound glory of the gospel. Boast in the gospel of grace. Boast in the cross. You see, cross-centered people speak graciously. Let me say this kind of. Don't compare yourself to other people. There are some people sitting around you who really, they're sinners, but they really just, they were kind of nice from birth. They really were. I tell you, my brother was that way. Uh, there's other people in my life who they, they're, they're nice. Now, the Holy Spirit is changing them in, in, in other areas. But, but if you came out kind of a natural fighter and pugilistic and kind of a, you know, a one-upman person, that, Behold the glory of Christ and realize that, that in, your, in your own personality development, that grace-filled people speak graciously. Cross-centered people speak graciously. Listen to James 3 about wisdom. James 3 verse 13 says this. Who is wise? Who is understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. Hear that? The meekness of wisdom. And the letter he says this, verse 17. But, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the, the word for gentle here means this. It means a, a humble patience, a steadfastness, which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred or malice because they are trusting in God. Wisdom from above is gentle. It's, it's reasonable. The word for reasonable, it means, it means that you're open to reason. You're willing to yield. See, Christ is... He softens us by his Holy Spirit. You read the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, it is a great sorrow to me. I saw, see so many young people here. and It's a great sorrow to me to understand that we live in a time of incivility. Let me tell you a story. This is not working. Could you guys show the first slide of a guy in a football pose up there? Football pose. Football, can you do a football pose? Is that possible? It's not working? It's not working. Thank you. It's not working. Shoot. There's a guy I was going to show you. There he goes. Oh, good. Thank you. So this guy played for the University of Michigan. Uh, 
they won the national championship in 1932 and 33. And then 1934, he was the captain of the team and voted most valuable player, and they won one game. They go from national champion to winning one game. That's tough. That's tough. But I think he's a man who was made for adversity. In fact, as a young man, uh, his, his biological father walked out of the home and uh, never really had anything to do with him. His mother remarried a man who was a, a widower with three boys, but that man adopted this young man. He took the man's name, and he said the rest of his life, my stepfather is the finest man I ever knew. Born for adversity. He went on to be a decorated pilot or decorated uh, officer in the Navy in World War II. After World War II, he decided to run for Congress in Grand Rapids, Michigan district. Uh, he was dating a young woman who was a divorcee who was also a dancer which did not go over well with the Dutch community of Grand Rapids. And so he waited until after he was elected to marry her. Her name was Betty. They had a long, fruitful, wonderful marriage. You can take the picture off now. Um, now show the next slide. You can show the comparison and see who it is. Um, a younger man, an older man. Anyways, man, man's name was uh, Gerald Ford. And those of us who are a little older remember 1974. 1974 was a very difficult year for our country. In 1974, we had a vice president, Spiro Agnew from Maryland, who was on the verge of being convicted of some crimes regarding monetary kickbacks, and he resigned in disgrace. And so Gerald Ford was appointed vice president by Richard Nixon. A few months later, in August of 1974, Richard Nixon resigned in disgrace because of the Watergate cover-up and the numerous lies that he had told for months. And so Gerald Ford became president at a very difficult time. Um, had never been elected nationally. He was a president, a man of integrity, a man really of, of in fact, I, Every night he said he would go to sleep and he would meditate on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths every night. So only five weeks into his term as president, without consulting many people, he saw that Watergate would tear the fabric of our country apart with the endless litigation and countersuits and so forth and so on. And so he decided to do something that proved to be incredibly unpopular. He gave Richard Nixon a full presidential pardon. And the nation was in an uproar. His, his popularity rate, by the way, went from 71% to two months later, 40%. Ruth thought it was the right thing to do. I read a book about him recently by Donald Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of Defense who worked for Gerald Ford, entitled, When the Center Held when the center held a play on his athleticism as a center on the offensive line. But the subtitle, Gerald Ford and the Rescue of the American Presidency. I'll tell you that story because there's another slide of Gerald Ford with another man they may be able to show you. But Gerald Ford is uh, in this picture with the House, Speaker of the House, a guy named Tip O'Neill. If you remember that name, Tip O'Neill was a Democrat. Ford was a Republican. And even though Tip O'Neill vociferously disagreed with giving Nixon a pardon. He said this. He said, I believe with all of my heart that Gerald Ford is a gift from God for the American people, close quote. 
I read that recently, and I, I just stopped, and I thought, i got to be honest, I can't think of anybody saying that about anybody else in the opposing party in today's culture. And it grieves me. It really grieves me. And in, in a time of incivility, we must be people who live out the reality of Christ. Because grace-filled people speak graciously. There's a picture of Minnesota they're going to show you. Minnesota is a state that's just a few miles below the Arctic Circle. Um, and uh, there's a beautiful city on Lake Superior named Duluth. And there's an article about civil discourse in Duluth, Minnesota, in the Wall Street Journal about three weeks ago. And I thought, wow. But, but the, Duluth was trying to attract industry, and the people would come in, and there, there was such animosity on the school board, in the city council, in the local government, that, that 10 years ago they all got together, and they said, we're going to adopt something, and, and it's called the uh, Civility Project of Duluth. And so they got together and called a Speak Your Peace, the Civility Project for regional government, for the school board, and it says this, the incivility threatened to actually drive people away from the area. So a regional development group, the Duluth Superior Area Community Foundation, stepped in to try to calm the waters. This was 10 years ago. It convened a group of local leaders who came up with nine core principles that if they declared should prevail in public debate. And here they are. Just, I'm going to read them off. These are things that you learned in the fourth, third and fourth, fifth grade. But here, here there are nine core principles. Number one, pay attention. <laughs> Number two, listen and let people finish their sentence. Three, be, be inclusive. Don't gossip. Show respect. Be agreeable. Apologize. Give constructive criticism and take responsibility. I'm going to... And this is held as a great landmark movement. I'm going, this is common sense. It says this. The goal the local leaders say is decidedly not to stifle debate. This is not a campaign, they, campaign, they say, to end disagreement. It is a campaign to improve public discourse by simply reminding ourselves of the very basic principles of respect, close quote. In fact, Mayor Emily Larson says the key effect may not even lie in how people talk. She says, quote, to me, civility is about truly listening, close quote. By actually listening, she says, people discover they have some common ground which lays the groundwork for the next conversation to be had. So what I'm saying is in this culture, to represent Christ, grace-filled people speak graciously. So we need to have an ongoing embrace of the wisdom and knowledge that's found in Christ. Number two, we, we, need, we understand this. We speak from the overflow of our hearts. You speak from the overflow of your hearts. In Matthew chapter 12, Christ says this. Starting in verse 33, he says, Either make a tree good and its fruit good, or make a tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil, for out of the abundance of your heart your mouth speaks? The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. 
I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And, see, and then the, the very next paragraph in, in, in English translations <clears throat> says this, then, so uh, the then could refer to the next day or uh, the next breath. I, I think it was the next breath. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, a term of divinity from Daniel in chapter 7, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, so as Christ is talking about speaking and public discourse, and he, he runs to the glory of the cross and the resurrection. And, and I, I just say, I've got to have an ongoing embrace of and love for and a thrama with the wonder of Jesus on the cross. Because God changes us. So, so my, my concern, especially for younger people, is what I call the splatter effect. The splatter effect is you're, you're, we've had a lot of rain this summer. You're, you're in downtown Charleston. Some of the streets are, are uneven, and you're walking, and it's raining, and there are puddles everywhere. And, and a, an SUV comes by, and they come by just as you're going through a place where the street dips, and the water comes up, and it splashes your clothes. Unintentional. But it happens. I call it the splatter effect. Uh, church is impossible to immerse yourself in a culture of negativity and vitriolic name-calling and not have it impact your spirit. That's why I do not watch the news. I just don't. I don't listen to talk radio. So I just find the majority of these people are caustic. And I don't want their vitriol to get in my spirit. And I'm not saying you need to do that. I'm just saying that's what I do. I read news. I read several periodicals. I'll read the Wall Street Journal, yada, yada. But, but I, I just, it's, it's so important. Here's, I read an article several months ago, and I thought about it a lot. I've kind of expanded on what they say. <clears throat> the article was on the, the growing popularity of the Hallmark Channel. The Hallmark Channel is a movie channel. And... The Hallmark movies are, are so unintellectually stimulating. And, and yet, they're happy. So here, here's what happens in Hallmark movies. You can change. So there's a guy. This happens the first, in the first 45 seconds. Okay. There's a guy. He's either has, has buried his wife or... He's been through a string of broken romances. He's just discouraged. And there's a woman. And she's had the same thing. And, and they both just happen to go into a, a, a yarn shop together. And, and they both just happen to reach into the bin of a certain yarn color. And then they start talking. And this is the first 45 seconds. And you know what's going to happen. They're going to date, and <clears throat> they're going to fall in love, and they're going to get married, and it's going to snow. 
It does. It snows. It always snows. And, you know. So the other night, we had some time off. And so we watched a Hallmark movie. I couldn't find Braveheart, so we watched Hallmark. And here's the storyline. It was, it was, so there's this incredibly, I mean, beautiful woman who is a multi, multi-millionaire who has her own private jet. Her parents died when she was young. She's been, she's grown up spoiled and so forth and so on. And so she decides to fly to Switzerland and go skiing with her best friend. They have a falling out. And, and so she skis away from the lodge. And she's a terrible skier, so she couldn't have gone more than 75 yards. But in this movie, she gets lost in the woods. And it just so happens that as the night is coming, she sees a dim light in the, in the distance, and she goes and knocks on the door. And there's, an, there's a physician there from America who owns a house in the Alps. You know, and he's been defrocked. What do they do to doctors when they blow it? And he's no longer practicing medicine. He's trying to work through forgiving himself. And, 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 and it's, she is, is beautiful, and guess what? He's drop-dead good-looking, too. And, and so I thought, I know where this is going. Guess what? They fall in love. She flies back to New York on a private jet. He chases her. She decides to come back. He's a little lagging behind because he's flying Delta, and she's flying a private jet. And, and they get together in Switzerland, and they embrace. And guess what? It snows. I mean, they love snow. I'm telling you, the, the, the two or three I've seen, they love snow. <clears throat> but I think people want to hear and see things that are, that are positive. Let me read a few verses from Proverbs on speech. These, Proverbs 10, verse 11. Some of these are in your worship guide. Proverbs 10, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Wow. A, a fountain of life. Of life. Proverbs 18, 20 and 21. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied, and he is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Think about that. Death and life in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 16 and 24. Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Behold the, the, the power of speech. And then Proverbs 31, this is a, a chapter <clears throat> for 21 verses, <clears throat> or 20 verses, which extols a godly woman. And it says, look, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And, and it describes this woman, and, and she's an entrepreneur. I mean, she, she makes, she, she's, she's a business person, and, 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 and she makes clothes for her family, and she knits her own clothes, which in those days wasn't a, 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 a deal breaker. It was just what they did. And, and she feeds her family, and they're clothed in scarlet, and she gets up at 4 o'clock, and she milks the cows, and then she makes cheese, and then she bakes bread. I mean, she is Wonder Woman. And it says that she's so wonderful that her husband brags about her in the council of the elders as he sits at the city gates. He says, my wife is, and they go, whoa, yeah, man, you're lucky. But verse 26 says this. It says, 
She opens her mouth with wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Now, whether this is about a husband or the wife or man or woman, let me tell you this. If you're married to someone who's an entrepreneur and makes money, and they clothe their family, and they feed their family, and they're industrious, and they speak vile, vituperative, condemning language, it wipes out everything else. You need to ask your spouse, ask your kids, ask your friends, am I a gracious speaker? The proverb says this, it's better to live in the corner of an attic that is leaking than with an angry woman. Now, nobody here is going to say amen, brother, but, but everybody's thinking that. Now, a, a, a leaking corner of an attic was not a good place to live. So if you're married to someone who speaks words of graciousness, thank them. I want to speak words of grace. I, I, I want to, because grace-centered, cross-driven people speak graciously. Proverbs 6, one more of the Proverbs. Proverbs 6 says there's six things the Lord hate, hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, Feet that are quick to run into evil, a man who breathes out lies, and a man who sows discord among the brethren. Three out of the seven people deal with speech, maybe five, but at least three deal with speech. And I say to myself, am I someone who speaks graciously to people around me? So here's what I'm saying. So, so I've talked about this, I've been thinking about this. So, so, so your goal for this week should be application. Refresh others by speaking kindly to them. Not just being nice, but speaking kindly. Speak kindly to people. Look and pray for opportunities. I was thinking about this, and I was at a conference this week. I'll tell you about it in a minute. But I was at this conference, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm going, you know. And then I, we were having breakfast and lunch and dinner with different people, and um, there was a young couple there from Charlottesville, Virginia, and he's a pastor, and she's, his, she was his wife, and they were kind. And I, I, Sometimes I'll talk to people for an hour, truth. And in an hour, they tell me all about themselves, not in a counseling situation, just in a friend. They tell me all about themselves, and not once do they say, how are you doing? Now, I know how many cavities they have. I know who their sports teams are. I know the name of their dog. And they've yet to say, well, tell me, how are you? Listen, don't do that. Listen, ask questions. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm with this young, she's 34, 35. And we're sitting there five minutes. She says, well, you know, let me, can I ask you a few questions? Tell me about it. 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 Grandkids, you have grandkids? Tell me about it. And so I thought about that. Huh? So the next day I looked her up and I said, let me tell you something. I was absolutely blown away with your interest in me as a person. 
and my kids and my grandkids and my wife. That is unusual, and I want to compliment you and tell you your mama did a good job. Oh, she said, oh, thank you very much. I, was, I don't do that frequently. That's just one brief shiny moment in a very dull life. And I want you to tell, know about that. But what I'm saying is we should be about the business of, of refreshing people. Look for opportunities. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Thirdly, the scripture says we, we should use words of graciousness, season with salt, so that you may know how to respond to every person. Um, there's a lot here I want to say, but our time is fleeting. I, but really, you read this and so I, you say, I, I need to be, um, be careful what I say. Yeah, but season with salt gives so much power to this statement. It really means, if you study the text, it, it means to be someone who can verbally and with a clear conscience uh, dialogue with people about key events of the faith and their day, basically. They're informed. They're biblically informed. They're thinking about how to strategically speak Christ to people. It's not just be gracious. It means to season it with salt. Speak graciously to people. But have on your mind the way to speak of the majesty and goodness of Christ. It's not just be gracious, but season it with salt. The salt of the gospel of grace. It's a powerful statement. So you may know how to respond to, to, to people. Um, so so th this week, I had the opportunity, I, I was invited <clears throat> to go to a conference, the annual conference of the Alliance Defending Freedom. It's a group of people, it's a great group of people. 95% attorneys, there were, there were a couple of governors there, there were attorneys general, there were solicitor generals there. Uh, from various states, um, we had these panel discussions, and I mean, it was it was a full week, but man, it was energizing. And uh, I, I had lunch and breakfast and supper with people who've argued cases before the Supreme Court. I was, I was going, wow. You know. And so there was <clears throat> there was a man there named John Birch, who's. He's 45. I looked it up on the web because he really looks like he's 25. He's very youthful looking. He was the Solicitor General of Michigan. He and his wife have five children, very committed Roman Catholic. Um, but he gave a couple of addresses. And um, he's argued 11 cases before the Supreme Court of the United States. Amazing. In fact, he was the chief litigator, whatever the word is, representing a, a desire to underscore the Defense of Marriage Act, the marriage in our country is between a woman and a, a man. And, and so in the Obergefell decision, he was arguing for that. And of course, um, day after day, they would argue and uh, the court voted five to four in June of 2015 that marriage could be between uh, two women or two men which we think is, is not right. And they legislated from the bench, which if, if you know basic civics, that's an oxymoron. That should not be. And they said the 14th Amendment uh, guarantees, basically, 
same-sex marriage, which is a huge stretch, no matter who you are anyway. So he talked about that intense situation. This is what he said, and it really struck me. He said, day after day, I would argue, and then I would go out. And there were always two groups on the cap, on the, on the steps of the Supreme Court. One group was the pro-gay movement, and they would hold up signs that says, love conquers all, love will win. And he said, now, we would say their definition of love is not whatever you want to do. Love is doing what's, what's true in light of scriptures. So, but, but, but he said that that's what they were saying. On the other side was the pro-marriage group, and they would hold up signs that said, um, homosexuals go to hell. God hates gays. I mean, God doesn't hate gays, guys. God loves people. He hates our sin. And he said his heart would break because you had these people and he had anger, callousness. So it caused me to think, ask this question. What, what, and we've already confronted some of this. But, but what do we do when transgender people worship with us? That's happened. What do we do when two men come and they want to put their child in the nursery or two women? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to love them. We're going to embrace them. We're going to have them into our homes for meals. We're going to love their kids if they bring kids here. And we're going to say, God changes hearts. Now, if they ask me, I will say to them with great honesty, we have a new members class on Saturday. And if they say, we'd love to be members of this church, I said, well, you know, to be a member of this church, you must repent of all known sin. And we can't accept this lifestyle, but we love you. And God works in your heart. I mean, that's what we do. That's what we, we just, we love. It's because cross-driven, grace-saturated people speak graciously. And they love graciously. That's who we have to be. And I think about this, and I think about the joy of being part of this church and, and just how year after year after year you have graciously loved me. And my wife and my kids. And that's such a gift. And I want that gift for other people. I want, I want, because I, I want to be cross-driven because I, I do believe cross-driven people speak graciously. And they love tenderly. So let your speech always be with grace. Season as it were with salt. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for the, thank you for the scripture. Theologically, we say the perspicuity of scripture which means that the scripture is understandable by people with just a basic education, that the, the words make sense by the Holy Spirit. And thank you that we can pick up the Bible and we can read it and go, wow. But especially thank you that the Bible points to the solid rock who is Jesus. I pray we would stand on the solid rock and we would love people. Lord, may our speech always be with grace. Oh, man. 
Forgive me for being short-tempered. Forgive me for looking at people who are down and out and not esteeming them. Forgive me for people who live in different ways in their sexual orientation and really kind of fleeing from them. I, I pray that, we'd be a, that we would be magnetized to love people that are different than us. Just to speak graciously to them in a culture of incivility. So bless us, I pray in Jesus' name.